So having said that, if there are any children which would like to be dismissed to Children's Church or adults that monitor those things, please take care of that now. And kids, thanks for your patience through all that. All right, our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared it in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Amen. Last week... We looked at a hard teaching and one that points, uh, rather, and one of the points that came from that teaching, from this pulpit, if you will, was that while certain teachings are difficult to understand, maybe, maybe even seemingly mysterious, we're not to throw in the towel of pursuit to know them, to understand them. And it's to God's praise, frankly, frankly, that we do pursue them and that we relish in wonderment over them. As we're told, all scripture, right, all of it, we're told this in 2 Timothy 3, it's God-breathed, it's profitable for teaching and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped, okay, all scripture. And so we're not permitted to rest only on that which we understand. I can strongly attest to this fact that the more you learn about God, about his character, his truths, his doctrinal realities, the more you realize what you don't know. How far in the dark, so to speak, that you are. How much light there is to, to get to be acquainted with. If there's one thing that has resulted from my years at seminary is that while we have it's that while we have a, a grasp on certain things, right, this subject or that subject, whatever that theological subject might be, it is in reality vastly deeper and richer than our present mind understands. Okay, put another way, the things concerning God, whatever, whatever you understand to be true, even the best of your understanding is but a superficial scratch 
on the surface of that truth. The full reality of it, of just that little aspect of God's glory, will yield an eternity of appreciation, the depths of which can never be fully plumbed. And so it's a good thing we have an eternity to ponder them and to wonder about them, to to praise God over them. And with that introduction, I want to bring to your attention uh, the reading. Uh, We'll start off at Hebrews 6, verse 1, which says, Therefore, let us have the elementary doctrine of Christ. I'm sorry, leave. Let us, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. It's verse 1. God is saying here, not that we forget or that we cease to appreciate these basic doctrines, but that we're to move on from camping out on them. We're to be building beyond that foundation, beyond that cinder block, if you will, of Christ. We're to construct ourselves with spiritual advancements, walls and windows and beautiful additions. So I urge us to look this morning at this God-revealed truth of hope. Not a hope that's conditional based on you, certainly not one that's based on me, or hope that is altered by chance or by impersonal forces in the universe, but a biblical understanding of hope, which is a forward-looking anticipation of assurance, salvation, glorification, and eternal life. If you're in Jesus, then these are yours with certainty, assurance of salvation, glorification, and eternal life. They're yours. Ordinarily, when we express hope, we know this, we think of hope as expressing an uncertainty. But this is not the distinctive biblical meaning of hope. Biblical hope is not just a desire for something good in the future, but rather, biblical hope expects it to happen. And it not only expects it to happen, but it's confident that it will happen. Because biblical hope is based on the promises of God. There's a moral certainty that what we expect, it will be done. I want to share with you Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. In other words, get your chin up, for you have every reason to praise him, and you have no reason to sulk. Psalm 42.5 says that your reasoning for being sullen in your soul, not that we can't be sad, but sullen in your soul is flawed. That's not good reasoning. One of the stalwart Puritan preachers of Cambridge, England, I know a few of you read these things. This Cambridge, England Puritan, he died in 1635. His name was Richard Sibbs, and he wrote a whole book on that one verse, 42 Verse 5, Psalm 42, 5, and he called it the soul's conflict with itself. 
And he did that because that verse, Psalm 42, 5, that's exactly what you have. You have the soul arguing with itself, preaching to itself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. Okay, but this 17th century Puritan teaching, it's not just applicable for then. Or in the psalmist's day, it's applicable for us today. He reminds us that hoping in God does not come naturally for sinners. We must preach it to ourselves and preach diligently and forcefully. Or we're going to be discontent. We're going to be downcast. We're going to have a disquieted spirit. Again, biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, but it expects it to happen. We should be comforted, by the way, that we're not, we're not alone in the struggle against sin. For even the historical giants, right, the biblical giants of the faith of Scripture, they were in this battle ring well before you and me. The various psalmists, and there are a few of them at least, they all wrestled to maintain their hope in God. This is a normal, normal Christian experience during our earthly life. And so we better own up to it, that we have a long way to go, a long way to grow, or else we may become sluggish and negligent in our fight for an adult understanding of the scriptures. So this morning we're, we're celebrating the beginning of Advent, as you know, and this week's theme is hope. But we should ask ourselves, hope in what? Hope for what? Hope in whom? And how does hope manifest itself in the Christian's life? Now, here's something that should bolster you, should make you confident day in and day out. And that's that if you possess biblical hope, then you have a resource, a pool available to you for emotional strength. That certainty of salvation, which is ultimate forgiveness allows you to draw strength from that reservoir when you are perhaps belittled. Helps you return good when you receive evil. And it lifts up your chin when you're inclined to depression. Without hope, all right, without it, you have no ability to absorb any wrong. You can't walk in love. And without hope, you will tend to sink into self-pity. If you experience a setback in your planning, you get sick or things don't go the way you expected, you can, you can draw on this emotional reservoir of hope for the strength to make the necessary adjustments and keep going. Because you know, you know that you're running a race whose end is certain and that God always gives you what is good for you. Just a reminder, don't compare yourself to your neighbor. You won't like it. God doesn't like it. Remember what I said earlier, what it was tumultuous wretchedness. That's what we are. So don't compare yourself to your neighbor. You'll lose. He knows what you need. This heavenly hope keeps us from earthly despair. So if you face temptation to be dishonest, perhaps to steal or to lie or to lust, you may look to your emotional reservoir of hope for the strength to hold fast to the way of righteousness and thereby denying yourself some brief, unsatisfying, 
at least long-term, unsatisfying pleasure. That's the way it works. Okay, that's the way we fight for holiness. And if this is the biblical way, and rather this is the biblical way to affect 1 Peter, his chapter 1, verse 10's directive to make your calling and election sure. All right. So what I just said, if you're still with me, that what I just said may bring to your mind a question, which is, is my response to God, my works and my pursuits, are they what keep me saved? The author of Hebrews, verses 4 through 6, sure makes it, he sure makes it sound this way. He says this, for it's impossible. He writes, for it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This sounds like you can be saved and then apostatize once and then are unable to be resaved. Well, if that's the case, and it's not, but if that's the case, then you have to dismiss volumes of other scriptures that offer proof of salvation's assurance. I don't want to say pick your poison. None of this is poison. It's all healthy, good adult food for the Christian. Consider John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Just stop right there for a moment. If you have eternal life, then you have it. You're eternally saved. This verse, John 3.36, doesn't say whoever believes in the Son has life for a time being. It doesn't say whoever believes in the Son has eternal life only until he doesn't believe and then reverts back to eternal death. That kind of thinking is making up a lot of theological funny business, and it's just not there. Ephesians 2.8, you know this, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. So if getting saved is not your own doing, then can you by your own doing get unsaved? Thinking such, if you think that way, it's just another legalistic man-made attempt at diminishing God's very great grace. And it elevates man to, frankly, a divine position. Right? You can choose your eternal destiny. That theology assigns to man a power that's only attributable to God. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, how's that for a promise that assures that salvation can never be lost? This is God Almighty speaking, right? It's Jesus who says this. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raises him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say that you might be saved. There is assurance in this confession and belief. You will be saved. 
That's very plain. Again, I've said this many times, including in the men's Bible study last Thursday, what's unclear should always be at least begun to be interpreted by what is clear. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So if you're in Christ and there's no more condemnation, all right, but somehow, say some, you can overcome Jesus' security, that you're his, and on your own volition, then you can get out of being in Christ and then become recondemned. But Romans 10, 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in the case of those who might think that isn't enough, that there's not enough evidence there in those verses, then we have John 6, 37, which leaves pretty much zero wiggle room about this. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Okay. That may be true, you might say. I'll buy that Jesus will never cast me away, but that doesn't mean, perhaps, that I can't leave on my own. Well, if you think that way, then again, you're placing yourself in the position of God who has you. You're saying he calls me, but I I can say no. He instills in me belief, but I can choose to disbelieve. And he saves me, but I can then throw away that salvation. Now, if you think this way, you got to admit, you are ascribing to Satan victory over the cross. And you will then never, ever have peace because you'll never be good enough to retain your own salvation. And if you think that you can lose your salvation that's been procured, bought by the blood of Jesus, and that you can thwart the purposes of God the Father, then you are still living under the law. And you've dispensed with God's saving grace. And if that's the case, then I'm here to tell you that you were never saved to begin with. The gospel is not a random message that gets slung around with fingers crossed and hoping that some of it sticks. All right, so what's going on here? Can you or can you not lose your salvation? Is perseverance a requirement to keep your salvation? Is, Is assurance contingent on perseverance? Well, no, of course not. But it is evidence of it. Only once God justifies you, once God justifies you by the imputed righteousness of his son, right, which is, which is the legal declaration of your being justified, then you are preserved by him. I preached from this pulpit many months ago, that golden chain of salvation or golden chain of redemption. It comes from Romans 8. Verses 29 and 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is a sequence. Those verses feature that those links, what are called the chain or the golden chain of salvation. 
or redemption, right? It's an inviolable, cannot violate it, inviolable, inviolable order in which our creator saves his people. This is how God gets it done. Although that chain does not specifically mention everything that God does in his redeeming us. For example, we don't find the word sanctification in there. But it does tell us that salvation is, from start to finish, the work of the Lord. It's not that God initiates our salvation and that somehow we, through our obedience, complete it. Our service to God is important. And even a preparation for us for heaven. But it doesn't merit heaven. And it doesn't help us get there. God and God alone saves He starts the work and he finishes it without any help from us in being saved and glorified. And here's the point that will help you see this more clearly. Once saved, we are called to do good works. I commend many of you who I see it all the time in Edgemont. You do good works, but we're not kept by them. Instead, we are kept, we are preserved by God. I want that to distill in your mind for a moment. Let it sink into your heart. If you believe in Jesus, if he's your savior, then your glorification is assured. It's assured because it's Jesus himself who secures you. It's God himself who preserves you. And therefore, your salvation will manifest itself in your perseverance in your continual repentance, in your striving to feast on God's truths and to grow by his grace, maturing into a spiritual adult, that you'll dine on adult doctrine that forms you into or conforms you into looking like your Lord Jesus. Okay, and here again, put another way, is the point that you must never forget. This is why, this is why your hope is assured. Perseverance in godliness is not the ongoing act of salvation. Okay, rather, perseverance is the evidence of it. It's the proof of a person's genuine salvation. And this biblical hope, because it's decided by God, because it's affected by God and preserved by God, it is, therefore, certain. I've listed for you many scriptural evidences of this, but We should also consider that our text in Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 12, after warning his readers that it is possible for people who have had a remarkable religious experience or experiences to commit apostasy and to go beyond the the point of return. He says this, "Though, though we speak thus, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love which you, which you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, the the reason that this author of Hebrews is so sure that his readers will not be among the apostates is that they've 
uh, not only been loving servants for God's sake in the past, but that they are still serving. They're still doing it. They're persevering. They're evidencing their salvation. You see that emphasis on perseverance, don't you? At the end of verse 10, you showed love in serving the saints in the past, and you still do. Their religious experience was not a temporary decision at a Bible camp or at a Christian concert or at a Billy Graham crusade. It was and is continuing. Perseverance and godliness is the proof of the genuineness, the genuineness of a person's salvation. And that's why this writer of Hebrews feels so sure of the people. They had served the saints, and they're still doing it. And then comes the admonition in verses 11 and 12 to press on and to not become sluggish. But now he describes the battle in terms of hope, not just in terms of love and, of, and service, Verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. In other words, with all the zeal of the past that enabled you to work and love in the name of Christ, with all that zeal, keep on doing it. Keep on pursuing the full assurance of hope to the end. There's no fight, no quest, no challenge, no war that's more urgent than this. Keep your hope vigorous. Keep your eye on the prize. Don't give up. And you won't give up because you're in Christ. and God is preserving you. So persevere till the end. Run the race. In fact, then immediately following in verse 12, verse 12 implies that hope and faith are almost synonymous. They almost mean the same thing. I want to show you this from Scripture. Verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Notice the connection here. Verse 11 says, go hard after full assurance of hope. And then verse 12 says that the result of that pursuit of hope is that you will be like those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, pursue hope so that you can be like men and women of faith. There's another reason to make that connection between hope and faith. That term, full assurance, as used here in verse 11, the Greek is plerophorian. Plerophorian. It's found in one other place in Hebrews. It's chapter 10, verse 22. But there... Plerophorian is full assurance of faith instead of full assurance of hope. Same word applied to two different things. It says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Then in the next verse, it says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Notice hope is something that should never, ever waver because it's rooted in the faithfulness of God. The relationship, okay, the relationship, the the dots connecting here between full assurance of faith and full assurance of hope is simply that faith is the larger idea here and hope is a necessary part of biblical faith. Hope is that part of faith, by the way, which focuses on the future. In biblical terms, When faith is directed to the future, you can actually call it hope. 
and you won't be wrong. But faith can also, as you know, focus on the past. For example, by faith we understand that the world was created by the word of God. Okay, so faith can look backwards to creation as well as forward. So faith is the larger term. You see this here in Hebrews 11.1. 1. This is the closest thing we have to a definition of faith, I think, in, the, in all of the New Testament. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So wherever there is full assurance of hope, there is faith. Okay, faith is the full assurance of hope. All right, James, Pastor James, why, why are you even making this point? I'm trying to connect the dots, as it were, between faith and hope. First, making this connection, I think, helps us grasp the true nature of biblical hope. Most of us know that biblical faith, it's a strong confidence. We would agree to that easily. But we need to realize that doubt, right, which is the opposite of hope, doubt is the enemy of biblical faith. But if hope is faith in a future sense, then we can see it more clearly that hope, too, also, is a strong confidence, right? not just wishful thinking. The other reason that it's important to see this relationship, I think, between faith and hope is that it shows how indispensable hope is. Indispensable. We all know that we're saved by grace through faith. Okay, faith is a necessary response for our salvation, an ongoing necessary demonstration of it. But we don't often speak of hope in those terms. But we should. All right, we wouldn't be wrong to do that. Since hope is an essential part of faith, if we take hope away, then the definition of faith in Hebrews 1 is destroyed. We're not merely saved by grace through faith, but we're also saved by grace through hope. I want you to notice how Paul shares the same view of hope in Romans chapter 4, verse 18. He describes Abraham as the great example of faith, and in particular of justification by faith. And in Romans 4.22, he says, This is why Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, the faith that Paul's speaking about is the faith that God would fulfill his promise by giving Abraham a son, Isaac. So the faith which justified Abraham was faith in the future work of God. Abraham, it says, was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. In other words, he had what Hebrews 6.11 called the full assurance of hope. So hope and faith connected. I'll summarize it this way and then I'm going to close. Whenever faith in God looks to the future, it can be called hope. And whenever hope rests on the word of God, it can be called faith. And so, Edgemont, I count it a great privilege. And I delight to share with you this biblical concept, this truth revealed in Scripture by God, unpacking what it means to agree with Romans 15, 13, that our God is a God of hope. And that the central exhortation of Jesus' universal church, and by extension, Edgemont and Covington, and by extension, you. Personally, that our encouragement is simply, it's confidently, and it's very profoundly to hope in God.
Let's pray. Father, this has been a worship service of immense significance. Our celebrating the beginning of the Christmas season, our installation of new leadership, and the reminder from your word that if we are in Christ, then we are yours forever. We thank you for your continued care of this congregation, God. You love this congregation, your saints who look to you for surety, for security, and the salvation of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.